Hello and welcome to another episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Shelath and I'm delighted to say that I have been joined by Varun Vasudevan who's already put his hand up. So he's really eager to tell me how he is. I pressed the hand up button instead of the mute button, the mute off button. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's also true that I'm excited to be here once again. So nice to meet both of you. Well, that's a lot more energy than usual. Yeah, yeah. indeed, I, indeed. I ate food this time. Ah, that explains it. And also it's the international break, so I guess you don't have to deal with Manchester United shenanigans, although, well, I mean, yeah, two never weeks mind. of let's, bliss. Let's not, uh, yeah, let, let's not go there. Anyway, you also heard Alex Balko there. How are you, Alex? I'm very good. Yes, I agree. We should not touch Manchester United. With the amount of things going on at our club, just the mention <laughs> of their name equals comments off on every post. Yeah, yeah, let's completely steer well clear of that. Let's actually, let's steer clear of England. Let's steer clear <laughs> of the top five leagues. And instead today, let us talk about some cool teams to watch outside of the top five European leagues. So basically, we've picked two teams each, as always, um, so six in total, who will be playing in UEFA competitions this season and obviously generally doing well in their countries. Um, who we think should be interesting to follow this season for a variety of reasons. Of course, uh, tactics being a key component of them since this is the tactics part. But also, you know, looking at sort of teams in transition between sort of managerial changes or major squad changes or teams that have settled well now and sh- should should be on for a strong season. So we've picked out six teams, as I said. Um, we've got a couple from Portugal. We've got one from Scotland. We've got one from Turkey, we've got one from Belgium, and we've got one from Denmark. So you can start guessing what which those are, but we will start with the one from Scotland, which is Celtic, which Varun will tell us a bit about. Yeah, I think Celtic's a really interesting one to start with. I mean, we just spent a whole podcast talking about Ange Postacoglu's Celtic. And for me personally, that's the most Celtic I have seen in the last decade. I mean, they were just so, so good under Ange and that's what made him really famous. I mean, he was pretty good before that too, but that's what really got him on the map and now he's at Spurs. And it's been really interesting uh, to watch Celtic and I've kind of been like a semi-fan from a distance. So what did you make of that time, Alex? Yes, well, for anyone who doesn't know, I uh, create content. I work for uh, 20-Minute Tims, uh, the best Celtic uh, content creators. And so that means I've been paid to follow Celtic uh, for the past year, very in-depth, going to some old games as well. And it means that, you know, this is something that will save me time and effort for this podcast getting to talk about them is what i told neil behind the scenes but no i've i'm interested to see how they do in europe because i think the manager they've got in um has got a lot to prove and so far he's not proving it very well you're obviously talking about brendan rogers and honestly i mean I get a lot of flack for this, but I actually like Brendan Rodgers. I think what he did with Leicester was good. Obviously, it started getting bad at the end and he stayed on for way too long, more time than he should have. So there was always a question mark, is Rodgers good? Is he always that guy who just had one or two spells here and there? And when he took over Celtic, there was this you know, question mark about his profile. Did he just have a, you know, a bad year? 
bad one or two years at the end of Leicester or is he just not cut out? And what have you made of him, Alex, so far? Which side are you on? Uh, I'm on the side that he's been bad. Um, it's a bit harsh. It's still early doors, but we've got to give the context. Of course, you mentioned Amposh Koglu at Celtic. Uh, in his two years there, he got his team to score 200 league goals, over 200 league goals. Um, they played fluid football. The rotations were excellent. It's a bit like Spurs at the moment. They're so hard to track. Like Celtics players felt like they were rehearsing in training for a play every weekend and were just able to peel any defence away and get straight to their goal. And Brendan Rodgers, what my big fear was to the guys, uh, 20 Minute Tims, I said it in a video to uh, their fans, was that Brendan Rodgers has been a bit outdated tactically, in my opinion, for the past couple of years. There's a lack of rotations in his game. At Celtic, when he was there before, it was a lot more based on positional play in a very basic sense. Uh, Players would be spread across the pitch in different zones, a bit like a Pep's Barcelona, but the emphasis was more on to get the ball to those players and then let them combine or show their quality. Whereas Ange Postacoglu was more about... Let's create numerical overloads in different areas. Let's get right backs inverting. Let's get the midfielders overlapping the wingers and just like making it really hard for defences to cope. Celtic at the moment under Brendan are just a bit more plain, a bit more boring. And the recent um, Old Firm derby uh, versus Rangers, um, it was a very flat game from both sides. Like... Celtic got the win for a really good goal for Kyogo Furuhashi, but from both teams, they they seem a step down from their heights, particularly in 21-22 when Rangers got to the Europa League final and Ange's Celtic were just in their pomp. Um, so yeah, it's not looking good from a tactical perspective, but there have been some signings. I don't know if you've been keeping track of any of these, Farron. To be very fair, I haven't. I've just <laughs> missed Celtic signings over this summer. And I was actually going to ask you about that because, see, one thing we discussed in the first episode was even Ange didn't have, you know, the best Ange trademark football in his first few months, in his first half a season or even a season at Celtic. But then he kept getting those players and he got almost 20, 22 players over the course of the first three, four windows. And then they played what we now know as, oh, the Ange trademark football. So I'm trying to, you know, bat a little bit for Rogers here. Is it a case of getting the signings in? What players have they gotten and, you know, what what do they need? Well, Celtic have obviously brought in a lot more money than they usually do. Um, Jota was sold to Al AC Hadwell, he might have left, uh, a bit unclear on that, for f- uh, 29 million euros. And their recruitment... People will probably remember from Celtic, you know, won't go super in-depth of it. The the other guys have got two teams to talk about. Um, but it was mainly based around uh, East Asian market, bringing in South Koreans and Japanese players. That hasn't stopped. They've won a couple of interesting guys. Uh, Hyun Jun Yang from Gangwon FC. He looks fun on the wing. Um, they've made a sign of Tomoki Iwata permanent. He's a bit of an, more of an interesting profile. They've got two bulldozer centre-backs, uh, Lagavilka and Navrotsky at Elfsborg and Legia Warsaw, a few other players, but the one I really want to highlight, who could be a star, potentially, um, even though their group is tough, which we'll touch on in a second, uh, Marco Tilio from Melbourne City. Um, Neil watches all games that aren't relevant, so I'm sure he knows about this guy. Uh, Tilio is, is 
he looks like a top five league winger already. He's really young. He's just one of those players who feels like he's making decisions like twice as speed as defenders. He hasn't played yet because he's injured, but he'll get straight into that team. He's probably the star man to watch, uh, as well as obviously Kyogo and Rio Hatate. As expected, Neil's hand has immediately gone up. So, yeah, what do you want to say, Neil? Yeah, no. On Marco Tellio, thank you very much, Alex, for bringing him up because what a player this guy is. I I would... Okay, maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. But I would say that he was... I mean, I thought he stayed in Australia for one more year than he could have. So, as you say, like right now, I I, I think he could make it to a top five league as well. But honestly, as you say, like his decision making is so good. And technically as well, he's so excellent. And I mean, I think he, he can do a job in the middle of like sort of in a half space role as well. So, yeah, I think it's... I Personally, I think it's great that Celtic are keeping up their recruitment in the Asian market, particularly the East Asian and... Australian market uh, even after Postecoglou's left because they are going to make a lot of great signings and eventually a lot of great profits with players like Tilio. So well done to them and well done to you. Well, I mean that was such a nice ending. We should just end the podcast there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but there is a, a very important a few question teams left. Yeah, yeah, a lot of teams left. And even when it comes to Celtic, um, they're in the Champions League. I mean, they're in the big boys league and what is their group and can they get out of the group? Can they go far in the Champions League? What do you think, Alex? Uh, no, I don't think they can. I, I said they're a European team to watch. I didn't say it's for a good reason. I think if they do do well, then that's going to shine really well on Brendan Rodgers. But I think they're a team to watch because there's so much in flux at the moment. The players, as you just mentioned, Tilio, he'll be great to watch. But in a group with Feyenoord, Atletico Madrid and Lazio, even though Lazio are really inconsistent in Europe um, under Mauricio Sarri, I'd be shocked if they get second. I think they're going to hope for third. I'm um, noticing a pattern where you just pick teams to shit on them. Is that true, Yes, Alex? That, do you know what? That is my secret. Um, <laughs> and uh, the guys won't be happy with 20 minutes. And in fairness, Brendan is probably a bit more set up to do well in Europe than Ange, who's ride or die of his philosophy, but... On current form, I don't think many Celtic fans would be in order of the idea that they're. It, it, it's a bit worrying. Oh, but actually, no. Fourth, I think, might be too harsh. I think they could get third, and then you never know in the Europa League knockout stages. But they really need to. Brendan needs to buck his ideas up. Yeah, I think, honestly, what's a shame to me is that this is a group where I think Ange could have done really well. Because mm. uh, against the likes of Atletico yeah. Madrid and Feyenoord, you know, he, he, he that's where his sort of possession-based football would have really come to the fore as opposed to like Real Madrid or someone. So, uh, with Ange, I would say they'd be favourites almost to get out of this group. But, uh, yeah, well, and I don't think it's likely this season, as you say. But anyway, let's go from one Champions League team to another. Hopefully, this one with some better chances of getting out of the group. Let's, let's now talk about Benfica, uh, who have been... A very interesting team for, I'd say, the last couple of seasons, ever since uh, Roger Schmidt's come in. Uh, they, of course, won the title last season, their first in how many years? A, f- a fair few years. Uh, and tactically as well, a very interesting team to watch. So let's sort of start unpicking them, maybe. Um, Varun, what, what have you made of them tactically under Schmidt over the last year or so? Yeah, as you said, I think last year was one of those jump years for Benfica. They did pretty well. They won the league just by two points. But, you know, um, emotionally for the club, it was a big win. And Roger Schmidt was at the center of all of it. 
uh, they appointed him in May 2022 and since then we've been seeing his brand of you know 442 football i mean say calling it just 442 is a little reductionist i'll explain a bit more um and the first half of last season what really worked for them was the enzo fernandez and florentino luis pivot and two amazing players i mean again two players who would feel at home in the best club in the world you know and enzo fernandez obviously proved that and earned his 120 million what was it 110 million 120 million whatever is crazy money million. way too many million <laughs> yeah i mean i lose track of chelsea's 100 million signings here and there but he's one of them and since then the pivot has shifted to a chiquinho fiorentino luis pivot but it's still the same 442 and the first thing i would say about any roger schmidt team and especially his benfica is they're so aggressive in the press i mean that's what makes them stand apart they're really good in the press and they rely a lot on it i mean you could say that that is the basis of their tactics everything in terms of how they keep the ball how they defend is geared around the counter pressing nature and when they press when the opponent has the ball they have like a 4132 shape you know there are the three attackers behind the two strikers they come really compact in a central you know counter pressing format like like it typically is with lot of these teams they uh, try to steal the ball and then attack vertically and florentino luis is the the lone pivot behind them the number 6 if you will and they are really good at shifting side to side i mean when you have such a compact counter press nature it's really important to quickly shift to the left and the right and they do that quite well and they have excellent dual winners you know throughout uh, the team i mean that back four otamendi antonio silva uh, 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 ba the right back grimaldo the left back last year at least all of them are very very good um, in, in duels and uh, you know pressing situations they come out on top so that that's why the whole system works so i mean i really like the way they defend i mean that's one thing that really strikes out to me yeah and that's of course very interesting and we saw that even in the champions league last season especially i think against psg they they really caused problems with their press that you mentioned but obviously i'd imagine in the league they have a lot more possession um and i think they're quite interesting when they have the ball too so tell us a bit more about that yeah i mean you would assume that being one of the top 2 3 teams in the league that you'd almost play like city or you know someone with high possession but i actually won't call them so possession based at all yes they do have a photo build up but they are very willing to go direct i mean their photo build up is nothing like for example brighton's current build up under deserby it's not like that they are not looking at those short passes and overloads in the middle none of that stuff one of their avenues is just quickly get it wide to the full back and then go for a direct ball to the front four either the winger or the striker one of the two strikers they are very direct and they are very okay willing to lose the ball they lose the ball a lot actually and uh, the reason is because when they lose it in the middle of the pitch trying to play a direct ball then their counter press machine starts and they again try to aggressively win it and attack quickly so it's it's all very intense and it's not super possession based and in fact when they are pegging their opponents they obviously play a very high line and lot of the teams they play against have deep blocks so in the attacking phase they almost have a 316 kind of shape you know the full backs are super high they are the widest players on the pitch and chikinio is dropping like a left sided you know defensive midfielder to form the 
and chicky is not super creative uh, when they made that swap with enzo they did lose a bit of that final third you know magic that enzo fernandez gives you but then they also gained a little bit of defensive stability that chicky gives you he can you know almost slot like a left center back or a left sided defensive midfielder so as the reason they were able they were able to play this that said uh, they made a lot of changes and this this season could actually look a little different for them right and i guess i guess let's talk about those then i, I suppose obviously there have been a fair few transfers as you said fernandes was uh, in what january but they've also lost a couple other players in important positions so uh, what changes have they made who have they brought in what's that looking like so i think the main um, as i said the chikinho spot was uh, obviously always a little temporary and i think they've got a very good replacement in orkan kokchu um and he is a lot more like for like with Enzo Fernandez i mean he's very similar in being that all phase energetic midfielder he can drop and help in build up but he really shines in that second phase and third phase when he's creating very aggressive playmaker they also lost, uh, lost gonzalo ramos to psg that was a bit of a blow for them because he was key uh, for them last last year he was pretty good in attack and they've got arthur cabral so it's it's uh, it's a like for like swap position wise but in terms of traits they lose a bit of that link up that progression that ability to make things stick uh, ramos is really good at that he could go wide he could go deep and the ball stuck to him but then i don't think ramos was very good at those poaching aspects you know you know to be able to smell uh, where the ball is going and be in the right position and keep hitting those goals he would have those goal routes where three four games he wouldn't score because he's not getting in great position and i think that's where cabral will improve them so he probably get, gives them a more poaching dimension another player they lost was grimaldo that was a huge loss i think that's their big loss i mean in the other places they have recouped well but grimaldo was a big loss and now at the start of the season frederick osnes is filling in at left back um i'm not sure how that experiment works let i mean let's see for a few more matches but as of now that is one drop i can clearly see um it's a good team i am not 100% sure if they'll be able to win the league again uh they still have a superb team and if i had to pick one player that everyone should be watching out for it should be antonio silva um i was doing a report on center backs united should go for and antonio silva is just far far right up there my two my two wishes uh, for united to sign were kim menje and antonio silva i mean that's how good silva is and kim menje obviously we know is world class and went to bayern but antonio silva is almost that level and i think benfica did not need to reduce the release clause of 120 million this summer because they al- already did that for gonzalo ramos so they just wanted one of their big players to go but i think next summer they will be forced to and i can see a very very big team coming and paying big money for antonio silva finally um what we started this this whole section with the champions league they are in group d with inter salzburg and sociedad and it does look like a tough group but then i am going to go ahead and say that i think they'll back salzburg they will beat them on both legs and i think they will trouble both inter and sociedad so i won't rule them out i won't place them fourth i think third is very safe and you never know 
if they get one one good home win against one of inter or sociedad they might sneak in second so let's see i mean maybe second or third or maybe a good europa run they were that'll be a repeat of last week's last season's champions league quarter final inter versus benfica it's a fun fact yep. isn't it indeed uh let's go now to a i'd say in recent times Almost just well, just as well known team, especially in the UK, Royal Saint Union Saint Jouar, a team I'm very fond of. The Belgian guys, owned by Tony Bloom, owner of Bel- of Brighton, uh, who got promoted after seventy years, uh, won the league on paper, uh, but then in Belgium's hilariously incompetent <laughs> uh, league system, they lost it in the championship phase. And honestly, if me and Neil got started on this debate, we'd be here all day. Um, genuinely all day so Nick why don't you just talk to us about well I've given you a bit maybe too much probably what you were going to say but intro the audience about them and what's happened uh I guess in the last few months and going into this season because I know they've lost a couple of players yeah before we do that quick question for you guys can you rank the top four most successful Belgian clubs in terms of league titles um I reckon I can yeah go on uh Anderlecht. That's right. Standard Liège. They're in the top four. Oh, is it Club Brugge then? Yep. Um, then, because Neil said top four, that obviously means Standard Liège is fourth, so it's a different team in third. Uh, I'm going to go Genk. Well, no, it's not Genk. It's actually Union Saint-Gilois. They're the oh, third wow. most successful club in Belgian football history. I wouldn't have and left that. by far the most successful with 34. Club Brugge have 18. Standard Liège have 10. Union have won 11 league titles, believe it or not. The reason Ooh. you probably have never heard of them is because all of them came before World War II. Uh, they were by far the most successful club uh, at the time. And so a really, really historic club in Belgium. But since, especially after World War II and since the 70s, they really went downwards, and I mean, around this time, ten years ago, they were all they were relegated from the third tier. Like they finished in the relegation spots at the third tier of Belgium, which of course is not a country with a great lot of depth in the pyramid. So they were really in financial trouble and stuff as well. But another club in that league was punished for financial irregular irregularities, which meant that they got promoted to a relegation playoff spot, and then they won that one nil. And that's basically, I mean, some would say that's the reason the club still exists. Because had they lost that, they may well have folded. Now, five years later, they were purchased by Tony Bloom, as you mentioned, Alex, who's, of course, the owner of Brighton. As well as co-investor Alex Muzio, who's really who, who's really been the guy running the club. He's been the chairman and he's really taken care of everything. And now, just this year, he has become the majority stakeholder. So, he is sort of the main owner now ahead of Bloom. And since he came in, he's basically implemented uh, a a really sort of modern data-driven recruitment approach. And they've bought, uh, you know, players, not necessarily always young players, but players who maybe have like low stock, had bad seasons or playing in a lower tier league. You just used three of my favorite words together, data-driven recruitment. (laughs) Sorry. You you, you love Union then because that's basically what they do. I mean, you look at their... um, so their league season in the second tier ahead of their promotion. They brought in guys like Dennis Undaf from the Dritten Liga in Germany, 
who then went on to become the European Golden Boot winner eventually scored the most goals in any of Europe's top flight leagues. Uh, I think last season, well, no, the season before last, uh, they bought uh, Dante Moser, who was who had a really bad time at Genk, which is obviously one of the top clubs, and it didn't look like he was going to make it in the Belgian Pro League, but then they made a great player out of him. They bought Molten international Teddy Toima from uh, Ligue 2, who has now gone to Liga with Ras uh, and really, really is a standout player. He became their club captain last season. And they bought Christian Burgess from Portsmouth uh, in England, of course. Uh, and so, you know, these are the sort of signings they made for really, really low fees, like, you know, in, in the almost in the hundreds of thousands of euros. And then they're selling them for tens of millions. So th- that's, that's basically the way they operate. Um, and if we even talk about their their promotion to the top flight, even the man who did it, the manager, Felice Mazou, was quite similar to these players in the sense that he, I mean, he'd done well with like sort of, you know, smaller clubs, uh, if I can say that, like uh, Charleroi. But at big sizes like Genk, he had a really poor time and, you know, people were asking, is he cut out for these jobs? So then he goes to the second tier with Union, puts up like... A hundred, not a, I don't remember, but a really good season where I think they suffered just maybe one loss, uh, and gets them like it was one. They broke a few records in the second tier and got promoted, and then instantly in their first season in the top flight, they're in the championship playoff, and they they really did take Club Brugge right till the end. I mean, again without the championship playoff, uh, I, they, they they would have won it. So uh, a, a really really impressive campaign then. But obviously at the end of all that. He left, he got a job at Anderlecht, which didn't go well, who, by the way, are the city rivals as well, but obviously more money and stuff. So he went, a bunch of their players uh, were sold for obviously massive, I mean, relatively massive money. Like, you look at the transfer profit in terms of uh, multiples, like it's almost in the hundreds sometimes. So uh, some great business for them. And then uh, Felicia Mazu was replaced by uh, Carol Gerards last season, who was his assistant. Uh, and despite all these losses, again, they brought in a few players who really not many people have heard of, like Victor Boniface is a great example. So now now everyone knows him and he's a sensational striker. But when they bought him from Bodo Glimt, he didn't make much of an impact in Norway, really. Like people following him there were like, yeah, I mean, he's not that good. Like, what are they doing? But well, clearly they know what they're doing because he's, I mean, he again uh, was the top scorer last season and now he's staring up the Bundesliga. Uh, and they got even closer to the league title. I mean, they were winning it on the final day until Toby Alderweireld scored uh, late on for Royal Antwerp. So, again, heartbreak for them as they seek their first title in almost 90 years now, I think, first league title. Um, but I, I guess they're, they're prepared to go again this season. Indeed, they are. Why don't you talk us through... Well... I'm sure it's not quite as strong as a squad last season, but talk us through any interesting talents and then we'll see if they've got a chance in Europe this season. Yeah, before I talk about the talents, actually, I have to mention the manager because I think this is oh, yes. uh, the best manager they've got. Uh, I mean, since coming up, really. Alexander Blessing has come in to um, Royal Union Saint-Gilles. Now, this guy made a name for himself, really. Uh, in the Pro League with uh, Ustende, who very much are relegation battlers. Um, and after a couple of years there, a couple of very successful years there, where he almost had them 
closer to the top half of the table playing a really intense pressing style um he came through at uh, i think rb leipzig's youth side so you could clearly see influences and then he went to genoa didn't exactly work out for him there uh, gone within a year uh, i mean he came in when they were in a relegation battle in seria um not really his fault that they lost that cuz he came in too late but didn't really get them playing too well in seria b so they got rid of him brought someone else in and got promoted and he's been out of job since but i think he is perfect for union sanchez was because ever since they've been promoted union have been built around defending uh and they're basically they're out of possession stuff like they are one of the most secure defensive sides in belgium uh, felice mazu i mean he lives and dies by the 5-3-2 formation and always mostly you know mid or a low block um so they're really hard to break down and that's why they're really successful in the big games against the likes of your anderlechts and club brugges and gangs and antwerps and all that so in and of course gerarets as well really just continued what mazu was doing of course as a part of the coaching staff but i think blessing takes them a level above because this guy now brings in just besides solid defending some really intense pressing and some great pressing structures too we've already seen some some very unique um pressing structures uh, in the league this season um uh, mostly it's it's a, it's a generally a player oriented sometimes hybrid press roughly a 343 but the makeup of the front line in particular varies a lot so you might have a one two structure when uh, the opposition are playing with a lone six or you might have a two one structure when they have a double pivot and the wingers come in really narrow on either side of them so tactically especially out of possession they are a super super interesting team so um i think this season besides of course the players which uh, i'll also quickly mention they they are going to be a very interesting team to watch tactically as well but let me quickly mention uh, a couple of players for you there as well um we've got uh, Jean-Thierry Lazare who i really like he is about 25 years old i mean to be fair union don't really do young players as much as they do lesser known players so you won't necessarily get too many youngsters there but you will certainly get in- interesting ones lazare is a good one uh, i think they got him from portugal if i'm not wrong uh oh sorry they got him from charleroi he was on loan there uh and he he's now become a key presence in their midfield after thomas departure to ras uh for there is a young player there kasper terho uh, i think about 20 years old right wing back he will now definitely play a key part in this season because of the departure uh of uh, bartnew coop to fynord he was supposed to be their starting right wing back but he left pretty late on so it's a good job they had terho in from uh, hjk in finland he i think has looked quite exciting uh in his f- in the few games i've watched of him uh got a decent goal threat and basically an attacking threat in the final third too and yeah i mean honestly they don't have young players honestly like uh, there there's a replacement for boniface i suppose was dennis eckert 26 year old german striker from ingolstadt um and you know like i i guess maybe a couple of years earlier if they were doing this i would have been like what are you doing guys but now at this point i'm just like you know what trust union they know what they're doing like even if you think what on earth are they doing buying like britain league players for someone who's tearing up the bundesliga you just have to hold your hands up and say um, yeah l- let them do their thing cuz they know what they're doing well if you think they know what they're doing where do you think they will finish Ooh, good question i think um in terms of the league 
it's an interesting one because uh, I do agree with you. It does look, I mean, generally to be their weakest squad uh, since they've come up. I don't think there are as talented players as Denis Undav or Teddy Toyma anymore. So it's, uh, but at the same time, I think the league as well, at the very top, it has sort of weakened a bit. Mainly, obviously, that's Club Brugge with their inconsistencies and, and such issues. And obviously, Genk and Antwerp also do tend to lose um, their best players quite often. So, I do think they can compete for the title in the league again. Uh, I think it's honestly going to be a very fine margins again, possibly down to the playoffs. And yeah, who knows what happens there, honestly. But they definitely the, compete. Uh... But yeah, the Europa League is our main focus, I suppose. And they have an interesting group with Liverpool, Lask and Toulouse. And I'd honestly back them to finish second here. Obviously, I you know I don't back them to do much against Liverpool because that's just different level. Um, Lask, uh, a decent team, but I reckon Union can get the better of them. And Toulouse as well, especially with Toulouse's uh, changes over the summer, uh, behind the scenes, some issues. Uh, I, I think Toulouse definitely should be light work for Union. Um, it's between them and Lask, but I, I'd say Union comfortably second. In that group, of course, they made the knockouts last season as well, I think. And yeah, I'd, I'd back them to do that uh, once again. I, po- I probably would have disagreed, but Toulouse sold uh, Ferris Chaibi on deadline day to uh, yeah. um, Frankfurt, which is a great move for Frankfurt, bad move for Toulouse. But now let's go into our, our last teams, which I think we're all going to have to spend a bit shorter on uh, to make sure this podcast doesn't go over an hour. Uh, but luckily, uh, the next team we're going to talk about Varen's talking about and I'd, this isn't this is like the opposite of a setup for you my friend but the team you're talking about <laughs> Porto I find to be one of the most boring in all of Europe in the league and in, yeah in the league like in the league and against big sides like no matter who they play no matter how big the scoreline is it feels like they're playing Sean Dash football and yeah, that's come on, from someone who's actually watched a bit of it so <laughs> could you could you no, tell me I'm, why I'm, I'm wrong or right just hold on. On. Let, let me sorry interrupt for a second. But I, f- for the listeners who are unaware, let me give you a, a quick anecdote to the extent of Porto's terrorism. So their oh, last league game against I don't know who it was. I think Arauca maybe. Um, yeah, Arauca. It was a one-one draw. Yeah, uh, and the, they, I mean, you know, they whatever they had the ball most of the game. I don't know. Arauca scored in the eighty-third minute. You think they're gonna win it? That's one nil. Now in the ninetieth minute or so. Porto were awarded a penalty, which after about a, f- a fair few minutes, I'd say maybe five, was overturned by VAR. And so we had like 15 minutes of stoppage time. And then again, five minutes later, there was a penalty shout, uh, which wasn't given. And then the referee went to VAR and that stopped working. And then he was on the phone or something. So eventually Porto had a penalty in the 16th minute of stoppage time, which was missed. And then they won the game, uh, or rather got a point. In the 19th minute of stoppage time against Arauca, who are like relegation battlers. So, I mean, if you need 19 minutes of stoppage time to get a point against Arauca, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, so, I prefer so, not to speak. So, go on, so go on, Baron. Talk, talk to us about the, the team you've researched <laughs> so much to make so interesting that me and Neil have set you up to be so interesting about. Talk to us about Porto. I'm, I'm going to reply with just one simple question. Um, it's a quiz again. Can you guys name the most, uh, in terms of number of trophies, the most decorated manager in Porto's history? Uh, 
It's not Sergio Conte. It's not Conte Sao. Yeah, like surely if it's if if it's him, cancel Portuguese football. It is Sergio Conte Sao. Oh Come my on. god, terrible! <laughs> He's got ten trophies. And Jose Wait, Mourinho, are you counting like super cups and stuff? Or is that I am obviously. Trophies? I mean, it's obviously okay, yeah, not a Champions yeah. League. We know that. Yeah, no, uh, no. I mean, like leagues and cups. I get but, like super cups, leagues, yeah. cups, and yeah, three super cups. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's all included. It's part of the trophy all. Sure. And okay, okay. Let me put another stat for you. Which manager in Porto's history has managed the most games for them? Yeah, that's surely Conte. Yeah, so I mean, he's already a legend. So it doesn't matter what you Whoa. guys say. And I obviously agree with you guys. I mean, I am not saying watch Porto for fun in life. You know that that's not the point of watching Porto. But Alex he gets will the love job Porto done. then. Watch for suffering, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Alex, maybe up your alley. But then my point is, you don't get to manage a team for three thirty games now with a win percentage of seventy four percent, um, just like that. You know. His methods work, and I, I don't know. I actually like Sergio Conceição. I mean, I'm not saying his tactics are the best, but then he's been here since 2017, and it's not like Porto had a great time, uh, you know, throughout their uh, recent history. Obviously, there was the Mourinho era, and they've always won the league here and there. They've always been favorites for the league, but at a time when Conceição uh, took over. Things weren't super hunky dory, and he actually gave them an identity. And in the start, he had to fight. Uh, a lot with the fans uh, for multiple things. I mean, he came in and dropped Iker Casillas. I mean, that was a whole huge issue with the fans. But since then, he's won them over. And now what? They have won the league three times under him. All three years, he was voted best coach of the year. And he's actually had a good run. Um, I mean, the previous manager was Nuno Espirito Santo, so massive upgrade on him there. I'm sure even you guys would agree. Disagree? Uh, <laughs> oh come on! I mean, Nuno Santo is the same not, guy who's fighting let, with Zima right now. Let's not. No, let's, let's not. not get bogged down in yeah, Porto sorry. chat about Nuno versus Conte. Yeah. Let's not talking yeah. about pharmacy. Yeah. We have like come down a whole level at Nuno versus Conte. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. So I don't. Know. I mean, uh, he's been a fan favorite since then, and his methods work. And uh, even last year, I mean, they were just two points off the title, and they won the title in twenty one, twenty two. So I think it's been a really good five, six years under Conceição. I mean, it's just something that comes to my head now. Our next section is tactics, and again, I'm not setting you up well here. But does anyone disagree with this statement? Porto under Conceição are like if Diego Simeone took over Everton. Wow, that's so true. That's that's no, you, perfect. You, you can just say Sondike Everton. I mean, that also no, is no, no, no. no. It's, it's like Simeone taking over. It's Simeone taking over. It's like Simeone as well. Like I, he'd do a better job with Everton than this. No, because that's honestly, what I'm saying. Simeone taking over Everton will be like he gets the most he possibly can out of a group of not talented players besides Beto. Like it would be. It, it, that's what Porto feel like. Uh, like under Conte Zell, just a team of blokes who have been drilled to the absolute maximum by a coach who like we disrespect the style of his football like clearly his methods work as you rightly outlined is just unattractive to watch but let's not get bogged down their tactics Varun maybe yeah. you will tell me otherwise I mean it's not off to a good start in our Google Doc you started you're saying <laughs> four four two mid block relying on transitions and organized defensive play <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> is that it 
that that is the gold standard for all terrorist tactics for for to mid block relying on transitions and organized defensive play i mean that was oh come on that was what made mourinho famous and the, the simeones the dykes you can argue all you want they get results they get results that that's that's the end of the game it's it's a complete departure from where modern football is going 433 going into 235 you know so you can keep aside your ranges and peps for a while because we are talking about a very very organized 442 and much like benfica porto also defend a lot i mean it's really funny you would think the two best teams of the league should be playing possessional football but both don't and although benfica have a lot more of a counter pressing style porto also press a lot but then it's they press in phases they press in moments they don't really press high they like the opponent to come to them that mid block is you know uh, where all the magic happens and they try to steal the ball uh, in the middle of the pitch not really super high and one of their very very progressive elements in their gameplay is their goalkeeper diogo costa i mean anyone who's uh, watching been watching football and you know hearing the transfer rumors would know who diogo costa was lot of people were behind him united spurs everyone was linked at one point of time that's because he's an amazing talent and he uh, single handedly solves a lot of their build up issues he's extremely good in finding players he can find your full backs very quickly find your center backs and what he really does well which you know uh, 442 team loves a lot is he can find the wingers and he can literally isolate a winger against the full back with one very crisp and quick pass so he is a big tool for them in progressing sometimes you know none of this short build up pass just you know chuck it to the winger and he does that with extreme accuracy and other than that as you guys said i mean there's a lot of you know just simple hard working players there a lot of jordan henderson you know uh, if you may and galeno and pepe are very hard working wingers and the good good part about them is yes they are very quick they can take on their man but they also tuck in like almost extra full backs or extra wing backs you know they can really defend deep and uh, help help block out uh, the wide channels of the opposing team your full backs joao mario and uh, wendel are actually pretty good wide again very direct very quick on the counter they provide that width and when it comes to the attack uh tony and evanilson have been playing that poacher role and just behind them taremi is again a brilliant footballer i would say taremi and costa are their two best players and he's like a very well rounded supposed striker kind of player he can get into the box and do all the striker things he can also drop almost be like an attacking midfielder so i would say while a lot of the elements are very very hard working defensive those two elements diogo costa and taremi they are the ones who bring that that possession element they are the ones who make the move stick they are the ones who make a lot of things happen so that's largely how they are set up it's it's a very very um, you know almost hard working for photo but then there are one or two elements there that make things happen interesting why right. i i, I, I... You've gone through some of the players there. We'll just very briefly mention: has been any anyone new we could see this season that might pop out? Yeah, I I didn't mention the pivot because they've actually gone in a very different uh, direction with the pivot. So we saw a lot of Uribe and Ustagio in the pivot uh, last year, and both of them uh, Uribe has left the club, and Ustagio has relegated to the bench. They have now got Nico of Nico Gonzalez of Barcelona fame. 
and Alan Varela and uh, who's also been linked to a lot of clubs and Porto were the ones who finally got him. He's a proper wonder kid. Uh, a very, very good number six who's also a good playmaker. And Nico of Barca, as we know, is that really hardworking eight who can go up and down and probably play like a six himself too. They got them for 8 million each. Costa and Taremi both stayed after being linked the whole window. I think Taremi almost right till the end, he was linked to Milan and so many other clubs. And they both stayed. And their winger, Otavio, generated 60 million with a move to Saudi Arabia. So, overall, I think their transfer market has been pretty good. They have actually strengthened their team without losing much. And, you know, in recent years, that has been one issue. After the 21-22 triumph, they lost Vitinha, Fabio Vieira, Grujic, loan ended. So, they lost a lot of major elements in their team. And that's why I thought their last year wasn't that great and Benfica could, you know, win. But this year, I think they have got that that extra, you know, firepower. And I think they're going to give Benfica a run for their money and maybe even win the league. So, I'm pretty bullish about them in the league. In the Champions League, they are in Group H with Barcelona, Shakhtar and Antwerp. And I am actually going to say they're going to come second easily. They will come second. I think they will get wins against Shakhtar and Antwerp. And I think they might even trouble Barcelona. I mean, Barcelona have found it difficult against such irritating, you know, mid-block kind of teams. Uh, especially who can hit them on the transition, which Barca aren't super great at defending. So, I think it's going to, I think they're going to remain in the Champions League. They will come second in the group and at least make it to the knockouts. Yeah, I think that's, for, I think that's got Barca upset. Uh written all over it. Uh, I think we've got into our next team, which I'm I'm due to speak about, but the man uh, the man who'll be asking me the questions arguably might know more, so this will be a fun section. Neil, who am I talking about? Yes, I, I'm so very proud to say that Alex will be talking about Fenerbahce, which is a lovely, lovely pick, which I was I was so glad he I mean I was disappointed I didn't think of it, but so glad he thought of it. So Alex, tell us about Fenerbahce who are very fun, but tell us about something which is not fun, which is their coach. <laughs> what a lovely way to introduce him. You're taking advice there from me, my bit with uh, Porto and Varro. Yes, I, I, to, to prefix this as well, um, I did take on a challenge. Fadabache, uh, a few bits have been done on Get Football. I've been a little bit behind on um, uh, just that amazing window. So it's been very fun. But I've, it's a bit of a challenge in the UK. I don't know if you guys know. Turkish football highlights just aren't available geographically. You know how you guys might get Sky Sports highlights that are just blocked in your location? Turkish football just blocked in our location, which is really Not fun. with that attitude, but anyway. <laughs> with a legal attitude deal, they are. Uh, but the manager, Ismail Katal, uh, he's the coach. He's 62 years old. He's been an assistant at Fedebache. Uh, for four years, uh, we won, I think, two league titles, but that doesn't really count as an assistant, is my argument. Uh, as an actual manager, where he's been around the block in Turkish football uh, for two decades, um, he's only won one major trophy. He's won, I think, the second tier title, and he's won the Turkish Super Cup. Uh, I think that was in one of his spells at Fenerbahce, because now he's in his third spell after taking over in 2023. Um Yes, you're right. Not the most exciting thing, but I did look into him before. He was criticised in the past. In the 2014, there was an article written on him about how he could do some really good things in attack, quite fun, uh, quite fun encouragement and quite fun patterns, but his defence was atrocious. 
uh, in my experience so far, I've watching, Fe- watching Fedebache, I don't know if you agree, I think they've looked more solid in defence and they've retained some of that fun in attack. Uh, would you agree just off that? I, th- I think that's fair enough. Um, but as, as you said, they've definitely been fun in attack, but I suppose that um, has a decent amount of stuff to do with the players they brought in, which mm. are quite a few. I think in our doc, Alex has written... Added transfers in capitals, so many. Alex will read <laughs> off. So, Alex, why don't you read them off? Yes, and let's bear in mind as well, they finished second only by eight points the last season. And won the, the cup Turkish too, season. right? Yes, yes. So, they were in a good spot. Um, I haven't even checked who they lost, really. Well, they did lose a couple, actually. Arda Gula, obviously, to Real Madrid. That was a big loss. Um, playing off the right wingish. Uh, lost Bruma to Braga. Uh, Attila Zalai who's gone to Hoffenheim, who's been a much-hyped Hungarian centre-back for a while now. Uh, and, obviously, the goalkeeper Altai Bayinde to the club that should not be named, the Varen supports. So you think, oh, no, they've lost some talent. Well, Fenerbahce have had one of the windows of the summer. Like, I was thinking about this today. Saudi football has been praised. Like, oh, my God, everyone's going to watch their league. They've got so many fun players at the top four teams. I think Turkish football um, has arguably got... I think Fenerbahce have a better squad than any Saudi team. They've brought in Cengiz Under from Marseille, who's been pretty solid the last few years. Fred from Manchester United. Rodrigo Basal from Udinese. Uh, Dominic Fred who's, Livakov- Fred, who's one of the best players in the world. You have to add that uh, yes, each time you say <laughs> That guy, I'm afraid, I have to say. Sorry, my apologies. Uh, the second best Brazilian Fred. Um, Dominic Livakovic, the... Zagreb keeper, Croatian keeper, has been, again, hyped for a while. Uh, Mert Mulder from Sassuolo. Uh, and also Ryan Kent on a free from Rangers. Alexander Jiku on a free from Strasbourg. Dusan Tadic on a free from Ajax. And Edin Dzeko on a free from Inter. And Neil's probably dying to say, you forgot one. Well, the man I say for last, I think the most outrageous signing is Sebastian Szymanski from, I think technically Dynamo Moscow, but really from Fenerbahce. How oh, from, from um, or sorry. Yeah. I don't know how Fedabache have got this done <laughs> is it's mad. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, that's utter madness. I mean, the guy is so talented. And especially after being in the Eredivisie, like everyone saw him and everyone was like, okay, go to Fenerbahce. All due respect, great team. But he's clearly top five league quality, even top half top five league quality. But anyway, 100%. he's 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 there now and he's playing. So tell us quickly what you've I'm, made of him. I'm uh, I'm actually super impressed. They got all of these done just for fifty six million. Yeah, I like mean, most of these five threes. Yeah, I mean like Fred nine million, Simansky nine million, under fifteen Absolute million. Thievery. I mean these are good. <laughs> yeah, it's, they, it's it's mad. You know, if Szymanski went to a Premier League team, he'd be going for 30 mil. Like, he got 13 oh, goals and assists. Easy, he got 13 yeah. goals and assists last season. And Even even I, Mulder of Sassuolo. I mean, these are 23, 24-year-olds. I mean, for a Premier yeah. League team, they would have easily gone for 25, 30 mil. Even Levakovic. And they would have gone for very big fees. 100%. And, well, let's touch on the tactics now. And, as I said, I think the most impressive thing I found from Fenerbahce, I think what can often happen with teams like this uh, where they just bringing a boatload of players is that it's just 11 strangers playing together, you know, a discount version of PSG. But the thing I've been impressed with so far is how some of these signs have integrated already into the tactics and team. The patterns have been quite nice. There's a lot of nice wide rotations to penetrate the box. Fedabache 
tore apart FC uh, Twente in UEFA Conference League qualifying, uh, 5-1 in their home leg and just eviscerated their defence. And Szymanski in particular, I think, has such a good home in this team. Like at, at final last season, he was technically attacking midfielder on a 4-2-3-1, but he's very much more of a, f- a third midfielder. And that's what he was like at Dinamo Moscow, where I really liked him as well. Uh, Fenerbahce so far, he's made a lot more runs, just kind of penetrating the box. And like, there's a good goal, I think, in their, I think it was against Maribor, I want to say, one of their other Conference League games, where he passes wide to Tardic, who um, t- takes a couple of touches, fires it low into the box. Szymanski's continued his run and uh, powered in and powered in the shot. He's going to be a big part of their moves. But I, I also want to shout out some of the current players. Mishi Batsui, he's going to be a handful, I think, in the Conference League. Uh, he was a handful in Turkish football. He's, he, he was a guy who became a bit of a joke, but he was once quite a high-potential player. And he got, I think, 10 goals last season, I want to say. I've got it in front of me right now, What's actually. top scorer? Yeah, I think so. 12 goals, one assist. I'm not sure if that includes penalties. But... He seems a lot sharper, really good on the dribble. He's competing over a dribble per 90 last season, which is really cool stuff. Uh, I won't go on super long about them, but yeah, I think there, there's good signs, better than you'd expect for, you know, a team that's just brought in a load of players. Yep. And quickly then, let's have your prediction for their Europa Conference League season. And what's their group? Yes, their group is... Uh, Ludogorets, Nordjylland, and Spartak uh, Trnava, who's a team I've been looking at in pre-season. I mentioned them before, but neither of these yeah, guys have really heard about them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but I think they're going to win this group. I think that's pretty clear. And I think they can go all the way. Opta uh, published a quick viz that um, looked at the likelihood of the uh, uh, teams winning the Conference League. Aston Villa are the most likely of a 22% chance, I think. Um, Fenerbahce are second, which is ahead of teams like Eintracht Frankfurt, Fiorentina, Lille, who bottle you know, French, they bottle everything anyway. Um, yeah, there's I think they're very high spots here, but I'll hand it over to you two because they're obviously ranked higher than another team who are in their group. You guys have got to talk about a, a, a Danish side, go for it. Yes, that team is Epta Nordseland who are also a very, very fun club. Uh, and I think we'll give Fenerbahce a run for their money in this group, even though I agree with you, Fener are probably the favourites. Uh, so quick stuff on Nordjylland. They were founded in 2003 after uh, a f- club in Farum called Farum World Club went bankrupt. And so they were basically taken over and rebranded. And I do have to issue a quick correction from what I said in our last episode about uh, six players to watch, which is that... FC Nonsilon don't own the right to dream academies that I mentioned, which are now in a fair few places in Africa. It's the opposite, actually. The right to dream academies technically own FC Nonsilon. And so Nonsilon initially, or even to this day, basically are sort of a feeder club, or, or rather a club that the academies feed into and a pathway for their players into professional yeah, I did top not know football. that. So that, that is, is very, very impressive. Yeah. Um, and... At this point now, I mean, uh, Nordsjöland have been sort of the the club for Right to Dream for almost 20 years. But now they're expanding into a multi-club group. So now we, they've got uh, TUTFC in Egypt. And in 2026, they'll also be in MLS uh, with a club in San Diego. So it's a really exciting project. 
And I think everyone, the one thing everyone knows about Nautilon is that they are big on youth players and youth development. Like their average squad ages are like 21s and 22s. Since FBRF has average age data uh, weighted by minutes played uh, in the Danish Superliga, uh, Nautilon have the youngest average age in every single season until the last one, of course, uh, since 2015-16. And in most of those cases, their figure has been in the 21, so like 21 point something. So they basically play youth teams uh, and they do really well with them. They won the title uh, a few years ago, I think 2017, if I'm not wrong. Um, came fairly close last season, but uh, part of it was undermined by manager Fleming Pedersen leaving in around January. He had some personal issues, I think. Um, and so he stepped back. He's still overseeing the academy stuff, but he stepped back from the managerial role. And the coaching staff remained, though, uh, with Johannes Thorup taking charge. And especially this season, we're seeing more imprints of his style, I think. And they've become even more fun tactically because they play a very fluid and an incredibly passing-based style of play, which, I mean, they've like two setups. One is almost a 2-5-3 in possession. So, like, you've, your three midfielders are very close and the fullbacks are not high either. And all of them are, you know, making really quick passes and interchanges between each other and really just spinning their way around teams. And sometimes it's more of a sort of 2-4-1-3 where you have one sort of number 10 further up and a very close double pivot and, again, deep fullbacks to uh, help with the build-up. So they are very fun to watch. Loads of passes, really quick play, loads of rotations, uh, really tough to defend against. And, of course, I mentioned players, so I, I, I should name a few to watch out for. Obviously, we had Ernst Nuama, we mentioned, but he's now at Lyon. Um, so this season, I'd say definitely watch for Mohamed Diomande. He has stood out to me for the last two years. I don't have any idea how he's still there, honestly, because the likes of Andreas Shelderup have left, Nuama now. But I don't know what clubs are doing not looking at this guy. But he so is an he amazing midfielder. He was linked very strongly to Arsenal, uh, even Ooh. Liverpool, uh, Mohamed Diomande. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, but then I, I no idea, as you said, how he's still not been picked up by a top club and he's still continuing there. Yeah, like, I mean, even like a sort of a step into like maybe Belgium or Netherlands or Portugal with a, one of the top clubs there. But I mean, hey, good for Nonchalant because this guy is amazing. He can do, he can basically do everything in midfield. So he's a wonderful player to watch. really intelligent. Uh, Oliver Antman is back. He went to Groningen uh, last season on a loan with an option to buy, but they got relegated. Uh, not his fault, obviously. He went half a season. But he's a really exciting young attacker. Adamo Nagalo, a really uh, exciting ball-playing centre-back. Very good carrier as well. And Mario Dorgeles, I think a 19-year-old winger who has come through fairly recently. Uh, and he's shown some very good glimpses. So, uh, that's, that's one to watch as well. Those are a few players, I think. Um, and in terms of, finally, what they might do this season, I don't think they're going to really challenge Copenhagen for the title this season. Obviously, they fell short last season. After Copenhagen, that is the... Uh, defending champions uh, in Denmark and they've even strengthened their squad like quite seriously in the summer with some big names as well so I don't think Nordsalon can challenge them but I do think they should finish second Midtjylland will give a fight of course but I think they've currently probably still got it in them to stay ahead of them so I'd pick them for second and the group of course we mentioned uh, Fenerbahce, Ludogorets, Spartak Trnava, Fenerbahce probably a cut above, Spartak Trnava probably the worst team in the group it's between Ludogorets and Nordsjælland. 
I would back Nordsland at the moment, but uh, yeah, I was going to say I think one. they they can win the that group. I don't know about win Fenerbahce, but I think they can finish second. I, I'm, oh yeah, uh, Fenerbahce is there. I mean, it's yeah, second I mean, for sure, and you never know. Maybe if they're lucky first. Is Alex trying to point out that Oliver's Antman's surname is Antman? Because yeah, I was I was genuinely a second <laughs> away from putting a picture of Ant Man in the dock. Yeah, I, 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 you can check my Twitter feed. I've already done that when he scored. So I, I've, yeah. I've done it anyway. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, I've had my hand raised for about a minute and a half because I wanted to ask how tall he was. <laughs> oh God, uh, that's my contribution to this bit. Uh, well, thank you very much. I I see you gave us a challenge to finish this within an hour, and we've missed by about twenty odd seconds because of your Antman shenanigans. So thank you very much for that. What did then? In all seriousness, um, thank you everyone uh, for listening. Thanks guys for joining uh, us. Of course, um, where you can find all of us on Twitter. You can find Varun running the Devil's DNA account at the Devil's DNA. Alex is at EuroExpert underscore. I am at Shailat Neel. Uh, basically, my name flipped, and of course, the Get Football account uh, you can find at Get for Get Football EU. And then we've got all the sort of sister accounts for all the specific countries and leagues in the bio there, so you can find all of that there. Of course, besides this podcast, do keep a lookout on all the Get Football media outlets where we've got stuff on football from all over the world, be it like news news articles or videos, analysis, opinions from. Some of the best uh, writers and analysts uh, you can find, and you can find a link to all of that in the notes of this show wherever you're listening. So you can go get all the links there. Of course, if you can, please do rate the podcast uh, and give us a five star rating if you liked it, because that helps us uh, in in terms of our reach. And of course, uh, of if you if you can share it on socials as well, that's obviously great as well. But in any case, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you very much, guys, for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another interesting episode take care until then goodbye